Welcome to Cinema Chop Shop. Watch, chop, retrofit. I've reached that age where I, my contact lenses are no longer thin. They're very neat. The first day I put them in, I was like, wow, this is great. I can see things. But then the minute I tried to sit in front of my computer and do my work, it was, it was like everything was like double vision. And I was freaking out. I was like, oh shit, this isn't going to work out. I've got I've to I've change these. I was wearing my readers on top of my contacts. And then... That was on Monday. Then we had the fourth, so I didn't work that day. Came back on Wednesday, and like magic, everything was fine. Weird. And I was like, God damn, the brain is a really crazy thing. Well, I've been all but legally blind since I was, you know, born. But uh, so I'm used to not being able to see. But a few years ago, when I started having to wear reading glasses, I thought I had a brain tumor, and because I WebMD'd it. And blurry vision, and my daughter was like, "No, dude, you just need to go to like you know CVS and get you some uh, readers." <laughs> but this is not an optometry podcast. This is Cinema Chop Shop. Welcome, and we're back from a brief hiatus. And I apologize for the uh, uh, couple of weeks we missed. But apparently, uh, Joey can't keep his calendar straight of when his relatives are getting married. Mm-mm. Did you get in trouble for that? No, no. But uh, yeah, we did. We, it did waylay our uh, episode, our one and done episode, which yes. we're going to circle back to at some point. Yes, we have to circle yeah. back to it. But uh, this this uh, this week's episode was just too good. We had to bump it up in the schedule. It was brought to us by our uh, series regular Todd. Uh, thank you for joining us as well. Yeah. We've got Joey and Todd Happy in the to shop here. again. Todd, tell us what today's uh, theme is. So we're going to be talking about uh, camp films and. Uh, so camp films, and, and most of you, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have a general idea of, of the concept. Uh, but And we'll talk more about the subtlety of, of what a camp film is. But camp films, though, are usually films that, whether intentionally or unintentionally, get laughs uh, based off of either something that's satirical or something that's either intentionally or unintentionally bad or giving the artifice of being bad. Um, and we'll talk about the difference of the two because there are some subtleties that, that fall in there in terms of, well, did the director do this on purpose or, or not? Um, All right, so we're going to be doing the camp field. We're calling this episode Summer Camp because we're in the heat of fucking summer. It's ball sweat hot. Mm. Um, you guys were, were having some fun in the sun recently. Tell us about that. What was up? We uh, went to uh, the Pisgah Forest Mountains of North Carolina, where it was much cooler than it is here. I can imagine. Still hot, though. Yeah. Most days, there were a couple days where it it would shower, and then it'd be kind of cool after that. But um, we had a nice hike uh, one morning when it was nice and cool and overcast. So uh, saw some waterfalls, uh, you know, did some touristy things, shopping and whatnot. So it was relaxing and fun. Drank a lot of beer. Well, that's good. As one tends to do on a vacation. That's good stuff. So, yeah, camp films. I wanted to bring up someone uh, who wrote an essay in 1964. Her name is Susan Sontag. And her essay was called Notes on Camp. It was a 58-point essay. I will not bore you with all 58 points today. But there were a couple of points she made in the essay that kind of speak to what camp meant at that time. And of course, I think that there was kind of a, a dovetailing with pop art at the same time. We're talking about this mid 20th century awareness of our commercialism and, and that kind of thing that kind of spawned that movement. And so camp is kind of like almost like an offshoot of that. Mm-hmm. She says that camp is made of aesthetism, 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 
uh, a way of seeing the world not of beauty, but in terms of artifice and stylization. So what she's saying there is that there is an intentional um, stylistic choice being made to achieve this camp factor. I think one of the clearest and probably most well-known examples around that time would be the Batman TV series, um, embracing right. the pop art quality of the comic books and trying to translate that into television. And of course that there was a Batman movie made and extremely self-aware putting labels on all the devices and things. And then the zoom pal zap, all of those things that we're very familiar with is a very easy to understand, uh, example of early camp for audiences and for people in general. She then goes on to say, you know, when something is bad rather than camp, it's too mediocre in its ambition. And I think that that's a good, uh, a good guide and, uh, that will let you kind of steer yourself on what is just a generally a bad movie that we laugh at for being bad versus what is comically bad, intentionally bad, or stylistically good, but poorly achieved for comedic effect. I, I think that there's mm -hmm. somewhere in there is this murky definition almost like the old uh the old pornography discussion of i know pornography when i see it kind of thing it's it's yep. like that you know camp I, I i know it when i see it yeah so some of the films that are popular that, that that are good examples of of camp i think uh austin powers would be a sure. great example for a wide accessible audience the uh, uh showgirls yeah, that, that was a terrible movie. Well, and and this Showgirls is actually a very interesting one to, uh, and and I don't I don't think anybody necessarily picked it, but it might be worth a little bit of discussion because the movies were is or at least was reviled by critics, but then when you know a little bit more about Verhoeven and his uh, Verhoeven Verhoeven, yeah, and his uh, types of movies he makes it becomes more questionable about how much of the excessiveness and ridiculousness of that movie was actually intentional. Right. Yeah. The joke was on us, I think. Mm -hmm. um, Barbarella is a great example mm -hmm. from the sixties. That would be a, a great camp uh, 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 example to follow the uh, Japanese film house. Oh yes. High camp factor. Definitely. Um, For that matter, the American film house from the 80s. Oh, yeah. Horror film, yeah. Totally. Very diff totally norm different from movie, Cheers. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Also campy. Um, different vein of campiness, yeah, yeah. I think. The Evil Dead franchise, I think. Sure. Uh, oh, yeah. Camp. Oh, yeah. Uh, very self-aware, very tongue-in-cheek, very uh, uh, nods to the audience, you know, things like that that kind of uh, communicate that this is intentional. There are some over-the-top elements that are choices that we're making. Bruce Campbell just consciously chewing scenery everywhere. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Flash Gordon from the early 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a campy film. I think uh, almost does a great job, though, taking itself seriously, but at the same time, it's just so over-the-top bizarre. Uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Any of the trauma films, I think, follows sure. into the camp category. Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yep, that's a example I wrote down. The Love Witch from uh, Anna Biller. Almost any of her films, I think, fall into the camp category as well. She knows that she's being a little out there, and she's making very, very deliberate aesthetic choices to achieve that. Well, let's uh, not forget the king of camp, John Waters. Yes. Uh, you know, crybaby, very intentionally leaning into kitsch, uh, and, th and that's another element that sometimes is involved with campy films, especially of the earlier type that you talked about with Batman and stuff like that as sort of a leaning into kitschiness. Um, 
but you have a uh, cry baby by him of course uh, the d films he did with divine pink flamingos and stuff like that that definitely pretty much all of his films lean into camp in one way or another now i was gonna say for me i think the definition is he may perhaps even simpler camp is what happens when a movie is both bad in some way but also fun in some way. Yeah. And there's different variations of that, and there's a whole spectrum, but it, in order for it to be camp, it has to be fun on some level. Yeah. Even if it's just so you can sit around and snark, snark at it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, you know, it raises the question of, you know, the film uh, The Room. Is that a camp? Is that a camp film? Yeah, and this is an interesting question because a lot of the defi all the definitions that I found online lean into the Sontag version where this is intentionally done. Mm -hmm. However, you definitely hear the term camp applied to movies that are in the mystery science theater three thousand category of being very obviously done in earnest mm -hmm. by the filmmaker and just for whatever reason, uh, you know, it clearly is a bad movie, but people respond to it and enjoy it anyway. So what I would say is that there is that sort of camp film that's unintentional that is doing a lot of things incompetently, but there is at least one thing or some element that the uh, filmmaker did put their finger on, whether it's just a bizarre sensibility, yeah. which I would say with The Room, the famous lines from that movie in and of themselves are not great lines. Oh, hi, Mark. Mm -hmm. That's not a great line, but it's great, though, when it's delivered by Tommy Wiseau. Um, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. Same thing, right? Oh yeah, uh, the the sex scene where he's essentially fucking her navel. Yeah, uh, right. just, just like what planet are you from, yeah. dude? Uh, there's some great stuff in there that is laughable and unintentionally so. Or at least we think it's unintentional, mm -hmm. and we've been told it's unintentional. I, I think we're going to get into this uh, this this gray area. Oh, good. We got thunder, by the way, if you hear anything rocking in the background. Uh, this gray area of um, camp and an intersection of cult. I think that there is a lot of, of, of like, like uh, a, Venn, a Venn diagram. There's like a lot of overlap on that. Like you said, is it a, just a bad movie that we like to make fun of? There's got to be something else there that makes it redeemable. Uh, mm -hmm. for viewing audiences. Yeah, and Control 2 is another example where, and, and, and uh, someone in a documentary about that film uh, described what I think would sort of encapsulate the sensibility of movies like that pretty well, which is that it seems like a movie that a space alien watched four or five American films or, or movies and then tried to make an approximation of a film that human beings might respond to. Um, and, and then, of course, it's going to be completely off-center and off-kilter in some way and bizarre. Uh, and uh, there's often that bizarre quality, especially in the ones that are, you know, the, the room type or the troll two type. It's almost film. like an AI-generated film. Right. You know, exactly. there, there's always that element when AI generates something that we kind of snicker at because it didn't quite get it right and it's a little bit off. I was just going to say that everything that you're, you guys are talking about, I, I think that I would not count The Room as a camp okay, classic because it is a cult movie in that it has a cult following, but it's done seemingly so earnestly. Maybe we're just not in on the joke, but it seems like a very earnest attempt. And for me, it does not have that fun factor that okay. pure camp would have. Hmm, I don't know. 
Um, it's a pretty fun movie, and if you, I've never been to one, of course, but if you ever watch like videos of people that go to the viewings of like the room and stuff, they're shouting out the lines. They're, you know, there's a whole Rocky a Horror time. thing built yeah, up around it. Yeah, there's a Rocky <laughs> Horror thing around it uh, almost. Tro- same thing with Troll Two, um, and some of the other movies of, of that uh, of that ilk. Yeah, and and again, I think that's that uh, that crossover with with cult. Uh, it's just like which. It's debatable which one it falls into, and I think it's there's a world where it can be both. Yeah, right. Um, well, I think it's a subgenre, subgenres. Yes, yeah. yes, definitely. I asked each of us to come up with uh, two films that we want to bring to the discussion in the intentional camp and the unintentional camp. I think we'll let Todd go first. Okay, so uh, for my unintentional camp. And this, some people might debate with me whether or not this is a good movie or not. I would argue that it is a good slasher film, but not a good movie as such. Sleepaway Camp from 1983. Um, and this was directed by a guy named Robert uh, Hiltzik, who this was the only film he directed for many years. Um, and he became a lawyer after this, a corporate lawyer. And he didn't even know that this cult following had uh, developed around the movie until the year 2000 and someone... Uh, that was like a member of the fan club that he didn't even know existed, <laughs> called him up and, you know, wanted him to, you know, talk with their group or whatever. And he ended up directing, uh, 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 there were several sequels, but he ended up directing the one called Return to Sleepaway Camp. Um, but, uh, so, this movie is, the, the premise sounds very familiar to people who are familiar with 80s horror movies. Uh, these uh, two kids... Uh, one cousin, uh, two cousins go uh, to this camp. At the beginning of the film, though, we see uh, six years earlier a horrible accident on a boat where the father of Angela is killed. The cousin, uh, Ricky, is not there, but we see this happen, this boating accident, and so we flash forward six years in a very weird scene, and this is where some of the campiness with this movie comes in. Most of the acting in this film is very naturalistic, ranging from bad to mediocre, but this one character, who is the mother of uh, the character Ricky and the aunt of the Angela character, uh, is just very much uh, tapping into... um, you know, uh, Piper, uh, what's her name from Carrie, um, that, uh, the, uh, mother of Carrie in that oh, movie. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, wasn't that, what was, I can't remember that actress's name off the top of my head, but in any case, uh, very bizarre, uh, acting choices, uh, made by that character. I'm sure she was directed to do that. And so it throws the tone off kilter because, most of the a lot of the film is very naturalistically done but we get this little off kilter acting uh we can tell this woman's a little bit off um and so they go to uh the camp and then it kind of unfolds in familiar ways um actually i think one of the strengths of the film one thing it's doing well is kind of the dialogue between the kids because they're cursing each other they're pulling practical jokes they do the thing where they put the shaving cream on one person's hand and then when he's asleep and then tickle his nose and then he wipes the shaving cream on his face you know things like you know (laughs) yeah classic you know kid jokes um but then there are other things that are just really kind of weird and it's like well where did this come from um, there is a cook at the beginning of the film who is uh, very openly with uh, his co-workers um, excited about the appearance of all these uh, young females. And he uh, you know, talks about them not having hair on their pubic area and this kind of thing. Um, 
one of the guys who laughs with him, and it's like, why are you laughing at this dude, is actually a Robert Earl Jones, James Earl Jones' father, uh, has a role in this film, interestingly. Well, that's a weird piece of trivia. It, that yeah. is yeah. strange. And, uh, yep. Uh, and, um, and so... We get the first kill. We don't see the serial killer. We get kind of that POV thing, which had already, at this point, by 1983, people were already doing this. But we get the POV thing, and this uh, perverted uh, cook is leaning over a boiling hot pot, and someone pulls the chair out from under him and gets the scouting water poured over him. And then in kind of a neat scene, but also kind of kitschy in the same way, we see like the his skin start bubbling and stuff like that from the... From the uh, from the hot water, as we move, I, you know, I don't know how much of this we want to go into. I won't give a play by play, of course, but um, by the the end of the film, uh, these murders keep happening of similar ilk. And one, someone gets locked into a bathroom and they drop a beehive in there, and he gets stoned to death by bees. As one does. Uh, yes, right. Um, why he didn't crawl out from under the stall, I don't know, but uh, he was locked. <laughs> he was like he couldn't figure that out in the moment, I guess. Um, and so these killings keep happening. It's hard to think while yeah. you're getting swarmed by bees, probably. So the guy that runs the camp is another one of these camp elements to me. He seems <clears throat> like the caricature of a Jewish Hollywood agent. He walks around smoking a cigar. Uh, he, you know, is um, worried about the image of the camp. And so he's like, well, let's not tell the kids about this. People keep disappearing and getting gruesomely murdered. But let's not tell anyone about this. <laughs> Um, you know, and this character is, is just, uh, you know, it, it, it's definitely a character that I would say goes into that unintentional camp category a little bit. Um, well, I've been trying to count the number of times that you said the word camp in this, uh, <laughs> and I lost track and it strikes me. I wonder if, uh, I know it's set at a camp, sure. but, uh, they didn't have to include that word in the title. I wonder if the title is a is probably a clue for us. You wonder. I, the fact, though, that this uh, filmmaker only did the one <clears> film, <throat> he was in his 20s, this was the heyday of the slasher, it's possible that some of this was intentionally done. Maybe he wanted that character that I just referenced to be kind of funny. It's possible, sure. There are other choices, though, that just seem kind of off the beaten path, weird choices, like, for example, one of the... the uh, one of the camp counselors who uh, is the counselor for Angela's cabin is like a sadistic bitch. Like she, she, Angela won't talk to anybody. And so this camp counselor teams up with another one of the campers, Judy, and bullies essentially the Angela character. In one scene, she picks her up and throws her uh, into the lake against her will. And you're like, why aren't like why is this a camp counselor? Shouldn't they be firing? This? I mean, so 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 tell me what do you consider to be the camp elements of this camp movie? <laughs> so, uh, well, camp. a couple of things I mentioned. So, one of the elements about camp are those really bizarre flourishes that pop up. So, okay. the ant being one example, the weird guy that run, is running the camp who would never be the type of person who would actually run a camp. He's not athletic. Mm -hmm. In fact, the actor who played him died from lung cancer before the film was released. So, an unhealthy person who's walking around smoking cigars running a, a camp, kind of a weird choice. You have someone as a camp counselor who's bu actively bullying uh, some of the, uh, or one of the uh, campers. Um, you have uh, a homoerotic aesthetic that I haven't gotten to yet. So all of the male characters in this movie are walking around in Daisy Dukes. 
and one of them even has on like a half cut off shirt daisy dukes um there's one scene where a group of guys go skinny dipping without the girls now they do try to get the girls to go along but when they won't they're like oh we don't need y'all anyway and so they go skinny dipping by themselves um <laughs> so there's this weird kind of homoerotic thing that might have been intentionally done by the way once we get to the end now uh an another and and they're going to be spoilers coming up but um so what, in, what we find out about the father who got killed at the beginning of the movie is that he was a closeted gay man. We have this weird scene later where Angela has a flashback of her and her brother uh, seeing her father in bed with another man. Um, and they're giggling about it. And this sounds to me like the filmmaker here is working through a lot of stuff and yes. making this movie. <laughs> there's some weird, yeah, there's some weird subtext here that I think is a part of the recipe of camp probably. <laughs> And then, um, to make a long story short, at the end of the, so uh, Ricky's friend, uh, and I've forgotten that character's name, but anyway, he's trying to bring Angela out of her shell and kind of hook up with her, basically. And so finally, he kind of breaks through the shell. He's trying to make out with her, feel her up and stuff, and she just won't go through with it. But then at the end of the movie, she decides to go through with it, sort of. And when and then we uh, cut away. From that, we go and see um, them find the... Fi so finally, they're unraveling all these murders that had happened that no one knew about yet. They go to the beach and find Angela with this uh, kid's head, kid's uh, severed head in her lap, stroking his head, who, she, who was wanting to hook up with her. She drops the severed head, stands up, she's naked, and it turns out she's a boy. She has a penis. And so what has happened is... Uh, the the mother the or the aunt I'm sorry who she went to live with Ricky's mother uh, wanted a girl instead of a boy and so uh, Angela became Angela. I thought you weren't um, going to talk about John Waters movies. Clearly an <laughs> influence on uh, on the Crying Game. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, and another camp well, element, and let let me bring up the incompetence part because this is a uh, Joey. I think you saw this with me. There is a cop in the film who has a mustache in an early scene, and it's a real mustache. Well, evidently, they must have shot that early scene much later than the scene late in the movie because when they show him later, he has duct tape under his <laughs> nose, painted black for the mustache. I remember that. Um, <clears throat> and it was very clearly not a real mustache. It was a shot at night, so I think they were hoping that, and maybe in the days before, you know, 4K and stuff, this would have worked better, uh, that, you know, that no one would notice it. But you can clearly see... You know that he has uh, duct taped a mustache on this uh, character. Anyway, what, one little in. just aside here. Uh, you mentioned that there's this whole like gay subtext. There's a lot of overlap between camp and and like you know gay icons like yes. John Waters, for instance. Exactly. So there's a lot of like overlap there Absolutely. too. Absolutely. And drag queens oftentimes lean into kitschiness and camp. Yeah. I, oh yeah, acts. drag I think is inherently. Uh, and so, and so that's another reason why I picked this film, because there is that sort of subtext in there. In fact, there's been some debate about the film whether or not it's transphobic, <clears throat> with, some, with some trans people standing up for the film and saying, no, 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 this was a movie about abuse, not someone who was trans. Um, whereas other people think that, oh, the trans person ended up being a, a you know, homicidal maniac. All right. Um, anyway. Well, Todd, let's go ahead and jump into your second film. <laughs> And round out your 
Like, sure. We're not calling it a double feature, but these are yeah. your pair of uh, camp films. This oh, is your... I have a double feature with an interlude. So, Well, that's yeah. cool. Uh, so this is your intentional camp film. Yes. Yeah, so right. this, this one will be the intentional one. And thank you for cutting me off because I could go on and on about all these. So I have try, heard try Todd to go on and on about Sleepaway Camp um, before. Yes. Uh, so hopefully it makes sense why I consider that like unintentional camp um, versus even though the filmmaker may have been doing some things intentionally. Okay. So my intentional one is a movie from 2001 called Wet Hot American Summer. And so this is a film. So the, the, it's, a, it's an ensemble film, but uh, three of the main actors were actually veterans of a sketch comedy show that came on um, uh, MTV in the early 90s called The State. Uh, and even though it only lasted two seasons, it was a pretty influential show. And one thing that these characters always leaned into was very idiosyncratic, silly kind of comedy. Um, similar to the kids in the hall. Mm -hmm. um, so they cer certainly were influenced by that. Uh, those actors, Michael Ian Black, uh, who pops up in, in a lot of things. He did a show called Viva, uh, Viva, uh, La Viva La Variety that came on after the state has been in a lot of different things. Uh, Ken Marino uh, was another part of that uh, group. A very um, good director, too. Yeah. Um, Michael Showalter, uh, another member of that. Uh, Joe Truglia, who pops up in a bunch of things. Um, he had a memorable role in um, the uh, uh, Superbad, um, the guy that gets beat up at the party. Um, anyway. Uh, so, so those guys, so it's that kind of humor. Those guys are kind of the centerpiece of the movie, and so you get that kind of humor. This movie was reviled by critics. 38% on Rotten Tomatoes, got a one-star review from uh, Roger Ebert. The movie was clearly intentionally doing parody satire. I think where it went off track for some people and why it makes it sort of a camp favorite, uh, in addition to being camp movie, uh, is a very idiosyncratic bizarre style of humor that goes along with the parody and satire. So some things are parody and satire, like there's a scene uh, where there's um, a, uh, it's like a training montage type scene. So they're parodying montage type scenes, but also uh, there's a scene where one of the characters, Coop, says to this group of guys, hey, wait up for me, and then the camera pans back, and two, the two guys who he's asking to wait for him are just standing perfectly still in front of the um, in front of the wall of one of the cabins, just like, you know, perfectly stock still. And he goes and joins them standing stock still. And it's like, well, what is what the hell is that? What is that supposed to mean? It doesn't mean anything. That's the sense of humor, though, that we're dealing with. And either you're on that wavelength or you're not. Um, and so it's a combination of, uh, yes, satire and parody, but also silly, um, idiosyncratic humor uh, that you know will appeal to a lot of uh, a lot, lot of people, and so you get that combination. Uh, there's a there's a, a there's a chase scene on a motorcycle where the Ken Marino character is running away from the Joe uh, Truglia character. Uh, he's chasing him on a motorcycle and he's running on foot, but he can't catch up with him. And then at one point at the end of the scene, there is a haystack in the middle of the road, and Ken Marino's character stops at the haystack rather than going around it moves around like he doesn't know what to do, and then in slow motion jumps over it and keeps <laughs> running, and then Joe Truglia pulls up in the motorcycle and is like, ah, you got away. That's <laughs> the kind of thing that this movie is doing. Yeah, I won't belabor it too much because there's, this, as I said, this is an ensemble cast. There are tons of characters. Uh, Chris Maloney yeah. from uh, Law & Order SVU yeah, is hilarious in Stabler, this. Stabler, the crazy chef. Yeah, he plays this crazy <laughs> chef who talks to a, uh, a can of vegetables. 
and at the end of the movie comes out as uh, embracing his weirdness that he likes to hump uh, refrigerators. Yeah. This is the, you know. As one does. Yeah. <laughs> Molly Shannon's character uh, ends up having, uh, you know, a man trouble that she talks about with a 12-year-old kid who gives her very adult advice, and then at the end of the movie, they're about to get married. <laughs> um, interesting, you probably couldn't get away with that with a male older character and a sure. 12-year-old girl, but it worked It worked with this. And clearly, um, the, the camp elements in, in that particular film, um, everything is evocative of those summer camp films of the early 80s. Exactly. You know, Meatballs and mm-hmm. uh, all of the, the sleepaway camp type films. Uh, right. So all of that stuff is there. And like right. you said, if you're a fan of that uh, humor from the state, which I am, mm-hmm. um, those guys uh, did a tremendous job with that film and they've continued their careers in various trajectories. Yeah. Um, that's a good pick. I, I like that one as an example of camp. Yeah. Literally um, in... Yep. thematically because and it, I do think it's important to mention that uh, idiosyncratic element that separates it from just a standard satire or parody for instance scary movie is a satire slash parody that I would not consider a camp film even if you like those movies and consider them successful I wouldn't really put those exactly in the camp category uh, because it's almost purely satirical purely parodic versus that I agree with you there because I don't think there are any aesthetic choices that right are meant to exaggerate, but rather emulate. Right. So I, I think that that's a good, uh, good distinction. Right. Well, okay. Um, we've given Todd the floor and, uh, he's eating it up. Uh, we're going to go ahead and <laughs> jump into intermission. <laughs> uh, and then we'll come back. I really with... carried the first half. Well, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for doing the heavy lifting there, Todd. Uh, so we're going to go to intermission and when we come back, you and I will do ours. Joey, but not before we say, let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby and get ourselves some s'mores for camp. Yeah, yes. that works. Good, good call. Works. Good call. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yum, yum. It's time for a tasty and refreshing snack. We promise to satisfy your hunger, your thirst, your sweet tooth. So visit our refreshment center now. Let's go! And we're back. Thank you for bearing with us during the intermission. We talked about electric lawnmowers. Joey, what do you want to talk about? Well, when I first got the... Uh, the call for this episode. Um, my first thing, the first thing that I thought of when I when I think of camp is like fifties and sixties sci-fi and horror. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I eventually decided not to do something from that era, but it made me start thinking about how camp has a different flavor in different eras. Like fifties, early sixties camp is kind of innocent, um, you know, man in a rubber suit kind of thing. Uh, 70s camp is really hypersexualized a lot of times. You suddenly you could show titties on screen, you know. Someone eating uh, shit. That kind of stuff, yeah. <laughs> uh, 1980s camp um, has a completely different flavor, I think, when it comes to horror type camp anyway. And there's a lot of, you know, horror camp overlap. Uh, 80s horror camp leans into like questionable practical effects and kind of over the top gore and things like that. So uh, I, I went with two eighties uh, horror movies, one of which was beloved from my childhood and one of which I just experienced for the first time, maybe last year. Um, and then it struck me that there's a lot of horror movies from the eighties 
which have a heavy metal theme or feature metal in some way. And it strikes me that metal in many of its forms and subgenres, if not all, is inherently campy. Yes. Uh, especially 80s pop metal and, the, and those kind of things. And the satanic panic was going on, and you know it's hard not to think of that in a campy way and take it seriously. So that that's what uh, influenced the theme of my two movies. Uh, and the first one uh, is a film called Black Roses, nineteen eighty seven, uh, directed by John Fasano. Uh, he's done a handful of similar movies you've probably never heard of. Uh, most notably, another very uh, campy one which I almost put as a double feature called Rock and Roll Nightmare um, it's campy but it's kind of unwatchable so oh I, yeah it's yeah but Black Roses is does the thing that I like about campy movies which is it does two things at once it is campy there is an intentional or perhaps unintentional incompetency running behind the scenes but it actually works as a pretty good movie on a lot of levels too and Black Roses is uh, about a heavy metal band who does a three night stand in some you know middle American town uh, plot twist this is a spoiler alert the heavy metal band they're called Black Roses uh, actually are demons in disguise from oh. hell and they are bent on a mission to satanize all of the kids of the uh, of this uh of this town. Well, good. So one of the things that makes this film interesting to me is that I, f I find it, and I call it the anti footloose <laughs> because <laughs> the, the parents in this town who <laughs> are anti rock and roll and they're, you know, oppressing the kids and, and, and all that, they're right. The band really is a bunch of evil demonic <laughs> beings who are trying to take over their children. So I think it's the anti Footloose. Um, another thing that that uh, makes this movie special to me is something that I just realized today. I have a very my own personal Mandela effect thing going on here. Okay, I would have sworn that this was a trauma release. Oh, I even called it a trauma release in my letterbox review of it when I watched it a couple of years ago. And then uh, when I was looking at it today, it turns out that unless I'm missing something, it is actually not a trauma oh, wow. release. Okay. But it has all the, the hallmarks uh, of what you might expect from uh, one of those films, over the top special effects, uh, a general sense of campiness, but it's also very watchable as well. And the most noteworthy thing about this movie is that Big Pussy from the from the Sopranos okay. gets eaten alive by a demonic record player. <laughs> and if that's not camp, then I don't know what is. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's my first choice, uh, 1987's Black Roses. Uh, it also does something else pretty well, which I think is questionable in a lot of movies. Movies that feature... Metal music almost always in the 80s have third, fourth, fifth tier bands and or like canned music that's made just for the movie. Yes. Um, this one does that to a certain effect, but it actually has a bunch of actual third tier bands. Lizzie Borden, mm. Kid Cobra from Atlanta is a little known sort of between thrash and hair metal. Uh, and Carmen Apice. Uh, from Cactus and Vanilla Fudge, uh, brother of Vinny Apice, who spent some time with Black Sabbath, uh, is a bit part actor. He's a drummer in the band. He actually plays and did most of the music on the soundtrack as well. So it gets the music part of it right, uh, which that's I think is something that's key great. for something like this. I love it. 
1987's Black Roses. Uh, would I call it intentional or unintentional? I think that's arguable. One of the points that I wanted to make earlier was that I'm not really sure that there is a whole lot of unintentional camp. Okay. I, I think that it's we're selling the filmmakers short for a lot of these things that we call camp. I don't know that they were... I don't think it's fair to think that they were making good movies. They were well aware of the fact that what they were making were bad movies and trying to do the best they could with it, given the restraints of budget and, and whatnot. This one kind of falls in between those uh, those two uh, things. I like to divide it into two separate camps, if you will. <laughs> Campy movies that actually function as decent movies, which I would count this one as, and then camping movies which are unwatchable by yourself campy movies that require okay you sitting around with a group of people probably imbibing alcohol and pointing and laughing at the screen a la riff tracks i gotcha mystery science i would actually say in general that's true of camp whether unintentional or not and if you think about the intentional variety think about rocky hour picture show and uh films of that ilk that uh garner crowds that act out the scenes and go and see it together years after it was released and then also on the other side of the unintentional variety or, or arguably unintentional at least with troll 2 the room you have a same phenomena of people gathering together to um celebrate in some way uh these films and there is a communal aspect and if you watch these films alone it does lose some of its appeal to me i found that when i uh you know, rewatch Troll 2 this week when I was considering that as my choice. I was like, I'm not enjoying this yeah, as much I can't as... I, I'm not enjoying this alone, as much yeah. as I did when I watched it with a group of people. All right, Joey. What is your second film? Well, uh, I'm going to do a double feature, midnight double feature, and we're going to have an interlude uh-huh. uh, between... Um, and I'm going to show Dawkins' Dream Warriors video from, nice. <laughs> from the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street's uh, number three, The Dream Warriors. Um, also very campy... Dawkins playing in a sound set, a horror-themed sound set, and Freddy busts through the wall. Uh, it, it strikes me, though, that a lot of 80s horror, even the big-time movies, you might argue that many of the Friday the 13th uh, sequels, for instance, almost all of the Friday the 13th, those big, big horror franchises from the 80s, there's an element of camp even in those. I would oh, say certainly. Nightmare on Elm Street's sequels tremendously so. tremendously and even and, and all i mean i haven't seen all 14 or whatever of the friday the 13th series uh but they start kind of descending into camp very quickly uh, i think as well at, at the very least self-parody yeah yeah um so that's our uh that's our interlude uh the next one i think is arguable whether it's camp or not okay um it does have campy elements campy elements i would include in 1987's the gate oh yeah or uh, another heavy metal themed horror movie uh the campy elements might be uh some might say questionable practical effects i think they're actually quite good uh they're not meant to be realistic they're meant to be somewhat cartoony and they're actually quite well done i was watching a behind the scenes thing about this movie today and for those of y'all who haven't seen the film, uh, two boys, one of them including Stephen Dorff, uh, a nine-year-old Stephen Dorff in his uh, film debut, uh, open 
a portal at the gate, basically, to hell. Uh, there's a heavy metal album by an actual band called Sacrifice. Uh, they have an album called The Dark Book, which does not exist in real life, but they do have many albums of their own. Actually, are still playing, by the way. Uh, so they use uh, this Sacrifice album to help open the gate to hell, more or less inadvertently. Uh, and out pops a bunch of tiny minions, yes. uh, demonic minions who look somewhere between the ghoulies, which were sort of the knockoff gremlins, uh, and, you know, and I don't aliens. It's, it's, a, it's quite a, it's an interesting effect. I always thought that was stop motion, uh, animation, but it turns out that they were, a bunch of grown ass men in rubber suits, rubber suits, and then shrunk down for the sake. Yeah, oh, and they wow. did a bunch of some I, of it. I would have sworn that was stop motion. It looks like stop motion. Yeah, uh, but they did it. A lot of it they did with scale stuff. Like there was, a, they showed a set a behind the scenes image of a set where there was huge furniture sure. and these little guys, you know, running around in their in their rubber suits. Uh, so again, actually, I think quite good special effects for the time. Mm-hmm. Perhaps laughable now. It strikes me that what we consider camp, you know, 30 years later may not necessarily be camp uh, in the time. Another thing that makes this movie kind of campy is that it's really weird tonally. Yes. It's kind of marketed as a kid's movie. It features children as its protagonists. But it's fucking dark, yeah. and it's kind of gory. And this was back in the days when they would push a PG thirteen to the very limit. Yeah, almost certainly would have been an R. Now I've been watching somebody on uh, social media. Uh, she is a Gen X type woman who her theme is our parents were trying to scare the shit out of us, <laughs> and everything that she has said is true. I think that uh, uh, trauma and fear and, and just just phobia was the theme of, of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And I think that my parents were, were the architects of it all. Yeah, and there's an element. I, yeah, of course. Yeah, and I, I couldn't imagine showing this film to my now 10-year-old, although I'm sure that I watched it. I know that for a fact that I watched it at the time, and I wasn't much older. I would have been maybe 12 at the time, and I saw it around that same time. And I remember being scared shitless of it at the time and then laughing at it when I saw it later in life. (laughs) And to me, that's kind of that's a kind of a campy element, I think, as well. There's a lot of films like that. Children of the Corn, Dreamscape, this one, which were really scary to my developing mind and seem kind of cornball now that I'm older. But it also actually kind of works as as a film as well, too. And I'll. I say this. There's a there's a scene in the hand where a demon touches Stephen Dorff's character on the head, which naturally makes him grow an eyeball in the middle of his palm. Um, and the effect that's done on that is pretty damn good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I still would count it as camp, but I think it it does work uh, as a movie. Nice, Todd. You were going to say something. Oh, I was. Uh, my example of that that I can recall of a film that years I saw as a kid that terrified me and years later you know I laugh at is Friday the 13th part 5 um, which I actually and I even I didn't even see, I even saw the edited version when I really originally saw it on USA which um, one is 5 uh, that is the one where the Tommy character which was so in, in uh, part 4 uh, Tommy is this character played by um, 
oh, one of the uh, '80s icons um, from the Lost Boys and uh, Corey? Corey. Corey, yes, Corey Feldman is uh, in uh, part four of that film series, which, by the way, is also a campy movie and a really uh, fun one. But the fifth one is that character grown up, not played by Corey Feldman. Uh, and he's like in a mental institution or something like that. And so the killings are happening. Um, but then, spoiler alert, it turns out that it's actually not Jason, but um, the father of a uh, one of the patients who was murdered uh, by another. Patient. There's another one of those where anyway, uh, it scared it's... me shitless. And years later, when I the point was that it scared me shitless. And then years later, when I watched it, I was like, this isn't scary at all. Yeah, I was just gonna say again. I think that camp has a different flavor in different eras, and there's a the in the '80s. I think the the particular flavor of camp is questionable practical effects, which I still say hold up better than CGI in a lot of cases. Oh yeah, the practical. Uh, they're certainly time. more creative, even if they don't look quote unquote real. Yeah. Um, and both of the movies that I have uh, selected, I think, kind of nail that aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Okay. When even Sleepaway Camp, the practical effects in that were actually pretty good with some of the. Uh... The kill scenes. Black Roses is is worth a watch just for the scene I mentioned earlier with Big Pussy, uh, who, as I said, gets eaten by a demonic record player, and it's awesome. I, I don't understand. Like, did, did the record player have a mouth? Like, where was the mouth on the record player? I think that, and okay, it's been three years since I saw this, and this was, I, I did watch some clips of it today to refresh myself. I think that they're playing the record by the band, and then the record player itself kind of morphs into a demon and or a demon kind of comes out of the record player but the demon is a big toothy puppet basically okay are the teeth record and they needles kind of, they kind of no that Boy, would have been a really nice, missed the boat that yeah. would have been a nice choice Jesus uh, and they he big pussy and this this demonic entity sort of duke it out for a while and spoiler alert he loses um we should have done a disclaimer at the beginning of the episode to tell people do not play the camp drinking game. When we say the word camp, do not take a drink. <laughs> and if you do, we are not responsible. We are not yeah. responsible for what happens to your sorry ass. Um, okay. Miller Light if you're going to do it. <laughs> um, true to the spirit of the show, uh, the old midnight double feature, uh, I picked two films that have several ties to one another. Uh, both were released in 1995. Both co-star Ice-T both had success in other media prior to its adaptation into film so I'm going to start with the unintentional camp film Johnny Mnemonic this of course is the adaptation of a short story by revered author William Gibson I was a big fan of William Gibson's stuff. Do you guys read him back in the 90s at he's, all? He's one of those guys that's always been on the list that I would definitely want to check out at some point. But, of course, he's famous for having invented the term cyberspace and yeah. other other terms. iPhones, I actually watched Johnny Mnemonic this morning because uh, it's in the Criterion AI collection now. Did you watch the, the black and white cut? No, no, you I didn't. You should have watched the black and white cut. But they, they mentioned iPhones yes. in that. So I I assume that that's where Apple got that from. Hmm. Uh, I guess. Yeah. Um, William Gibson, very successful writer for writing the near future cybernetic computer dystopia. He was kind of writing on the coattails of these uh, guys who were making these predictions about the future, uh, extrapolating trends and things like that. So all of his 
fiction seemed quite believable because he wasn't making these far-fetched predictions. Johnny Mnemonic was released uh, in in 95, as I said, uh, directed by Robert Longo. This guy did not have any movie cred whatsoever. It was all music videos, like some REM videos and a couple of others. And why they gave him the keys to the car, I don't know. This seems like a a common thread as well, because I I know... uh the two directors I had, John Fasano, did a couple of other movies, but was mostly known for as a script doctor and as a weapons expert who wrote for like those militia mags, like mm-hmm. combat. And uh, the other uh, director who did The Gate, his name is Tibor Takax, and he's mostly known for doing Hallmark Christmas movies. Wow. Yep. Um, Get that paycheck. Which is, and, uh, yeah. And, and then the sleepaway camp director was ended up being a lawyer. So oh, well, there you go. The, well, that, I think it goes back to my point, I think, about uh, unintentional camp is there is a level of incompetence sort of underwriting yeah. it. And, but, and you have incompetence, but you have effort. Exactly. And, that, and I think that's where, where this mm. crazy amorphous mm-hmm. thing comes from. Um, so the film stars Keanu Reeves. This is pre-Matrix Keanu Reeves. Uh, we have Dolph Lundgren, who we just talked about not too long ago on in the show. In over his head in that role. Uh, Dina Meyer, who is in Starship Troopers. Very attractive, very cute, very bad actress. Uh, yes. Ice-T, which is another common thread in my, in my double feature. Also a bad actor. Uh, Henry Rollins was a street doctor in, in the film. And Udo Kier, very acclaimed actor. Uh, he was the best in, uh, actor in the movie, for sure. Sure. Uh, so... You've got a data courier who must deliver or unload the data that's stuffed into his head beyond his capacity, or it will destroy him. That's that's the plot. Uh, there are several factions that are trying to secure this data by any means necessary, including cutting his head off. The reason this film becomes campy, in my opinion, is that it is done with such reverence for the text that it looks absolutely ridiculous on screen, mm. especially when you have the stiffness of Keanu Reeves and Dina Myers acting. That is, to me, that it was one of the, not the only one, but one of the big differences between this actually being a good movie is that the choices for the actors were across the board pretty bad. Terrible. Like the, the Dolph Lundgren character, for example, that could have been an awesome... Well, see, I, 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 was, think, I think that the Dolph Lundgren character was doomed from the start because it, the whole street Jesus thing doesn't make any sense. And the way he would crucify his victims with whatever implements he had handy were just that was going to look silly on screen no matter yeah. what now imagine though willem dafoe in that role who who i thought of as someone that would have like nailed that oh type of character no versus intended. dolph lundgren i mean come on well, like in over his head that goes back to the whole intentional versus unintentional thing but i'm sorry if you cast dolph lundgren in a role you are preparing yourself. You you have to mm-hmm. know what you're getting, and well, part did, of what yeah. you're getting is a really weird, if not just flat out awful. And it was weird. It was strange, as was um, Henry Rollins' character as a doctor. Let's put glasses on Henry Rollins and make him look smart. Yeah, was essentially their solution. Well, they called him a mechanic almost. Yeah, right? and then of course Ice T was the leader of the uh, the underground. Well, I say underground. They were in in the uh, above ground. They were like in the rafters of the bridges or what have you. And 
it. How Ice-T was, how I, was Ice-T cool Ice-T at the time, I guess. You know, he he's had, had the, a thirty-year acting career. How? I don't know. He's never. He's terrible. So yeah, for me, the, the 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 camp factor comes from the fact that they tried so freaking hard, and yes, it does have an aesthetic, and the aesthetic, like you just said, uh, Joey, with the lens of time, is absolutely ridiculous because you've got these uh, aspirational computer graphics that look ridiculously mm-hmm. silly by today's standards. Well, William Gibson's stories are by and large unfilmable especially with the limitations of the technology at the time agreed and that's why i think that this starts to bleed over into camp because i don't think that there is any way to do the text justice your brain can do a good job of filling it in in all seriousness Mm -hmm. as you're reading it thinking wow that was pretty cool but then when the minute you try to translate it to film it just becomes impractical and that's where this this goofiness comes from and then again, like I said, underscored by really bad acting, then you've got a campy film. Well, and there were also the, and I wonder, because Gibson wrote the screenplay, right? He was a co-writer. Okay, so, and so that's, that's I, having never read Gibson, I don't know if this is part of his aesthetic or not, and I wondered if this might have been an intentional part. There were a lot of like hammy one-liners uh, in this movie too, and I wonder, was he, was that Gibson <clears throat> I don't think that was fun? him. Or was I, that like the script doctor kind of I think that was, okay. there was a lot of studio speak in there yeah. that, that, had mm-hmm. to have, have happened, yeah. Because there were some hammy. Especially for 1995. I mean, you've got uh, people that are uh, working in high-level high studios that are thinking, you know, well, we've got, it, we've got to have that uh, Schwarzenegger one-liner. You know, right. I think that's what they were shooting for. And again, this just predates uh, The Matrix by like three or four years. So, uh, you know, Keanu Reeves, not quite there yet. You know, he's still really a bad actor yeah. in this film. Well, and he's the classic <laughs> Robert Redford type. And Dolph Lundgren falls in this category, too. There's one thing they can do really well. And if you put him in that type of character role, great. But if you want him to show some range, um, they're not a shortstop, you know. <laughs> So, uh, Joe, you're going to say something? Well, I was just going to say, I I don't think that that was probably Gibson's touch because I did not read William Gibson at the time. I read William Gibson just a few years ago for the first time. uh, And I remember kind of being prejudiced against him because of this movie, which I don't remember a whole lot about, but I do remember hating it in the 90s. Uh, and then, so I kind of didn't want to read William Gibson. When I finally did, it struck me as very different tonally than mm-hmm. than what I knew from the film. I'm pairing that with a film that, uh, as I said, you know, enjoyed success in other media. And I'm talking about uh, Tank Girl. Now, Tank Girl was a comic book slash comic strip uh, written by... Um, Alan Martin and Jamie Hewlett. Now, most people would know Jamie Hewlett today as being one of the co-founders of the band Gorillaz. He's the visual artist behind that entire... Your mind blown yet? My mind just got Your blown. mind blown yet? So, uh, yeah, he did extremely well. Uh, and this the, the comic series was, was enjoyable and, and funny and clever. And you've got a girl who lives in another dystopian future. But this one's silly. This one's campy. This one is controlled by Water and Power Department. That's the name of their corporation. And they literally slap 
devices on the unsuspecting or the uh, uh, the poor or whatever, and it sucks the water out of their bodies so they can have water. And that's pretty much the evil corporation premise. Now, this is an actual trauma release. No, it's not a trauma Tank, release. Tank Girl is not a trauma no, release. No, it's not. It was I tra- wonder how many films I've been assuming <laughs> are trauma releases that are not actual trauma films. Uh, this movie is directed by Rachel Talalay. Talalay? Talalay? She, uh, she directed a Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Um, she directed uh, uh, several seasons of Doctor Who, several seasons of The Flash on CW. So she she knows what she's doing. She's she's got chops. Uh, this stars Lori Petty, uh, another uh, favorite of the show from League of Their Own. Thank you. Oh right 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 right. Okay, yes, sorry. Um, but it also stars Ice T, Naomi Watts, a very young Naomi Watts who plays a nerdy girl who flies a jet. Her character's name is Jet, I think, or Jet Girl. And Malcolm McDowell, another heavy hitter. Um, So that's another tie that binds, I think, between these two films. So based on the comic strip by the two previously mentioned creators, a girl navigates a dystopian future controlled by a water and power company with her tank, her pilot sidekick, and a gang of genetically modified kangaroo men. I think they're called ravagers or something mm. and they're kind of feared until they kind of meet up with them later and then there's some romance that happens between the girls and these kangaroo men which is weird but uh ice tea is one of these kangaroo men the uh the makeup's very silly on the the kangaroo guys very fat fingers very practical effects but then you've got some robotics that are happening with their facial expressions that are quite nice they constantly reference the comic strip in the comic book by cutting to actual cuts from the the, the comic book throughout the film so there is uh, a, a nod to the source material that lets you know that we know what we are we're not trying to be something that we're not there's a scene where tank girl has giant rockets for tits apparently like a big uh, prosthetic thing going on so again form and function form and function uh, but seriously there there is no um there is at no point does the film take itself too seriously the film obviously has an understanding that to adapt this comic book into a film we've got to completely commit and be ridiculous and over the top and stupid and silly the uh the Malcolm McDowell's character ends up like taking off his own head through the company. It becomes like a hologram of his head. Then he has like this weird, like gauntlet on his arm that reminds me of the villain from inspector gadget. So, (laughs) so yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of silliness that, uh, that, that contributes to the camp factor of this, of this movie that makes it work. Um, if they did like Johnny mnemonic and tried to take a serious approach and if they did try to, um, go that route it would have failed completely you have to be knowledgeable of camp in order to pull this movie off is it a great movie no it's not a great movie is it watchable yes i was gonna ask uh so earlier i talked about how i thought that camp from different eras had a different flavor uh what what do you think distinguishes 90s camp and then what is camp look like now Mm, that's a good question guys um, I think that 90s camp would be... I think part of it goes back to what you talked about, at least one element, not the whole thing, but uh, the, uh, you know, uh, CGI was in its early stages or not, or not out yet, and so you had this sort of amateurish-looking attempt mm-hmm. at doing certain graphics. They were moving away from the practical effects of the 80s, right. that we prefer, and then CGI, which I would argue still isn't that great, but it certainly it was in like its infancy, and so you had this kind of middle ground of this schlocky-looking, you know, 
uh, special effects. I will. Here's what I think about '90s camp. '90s camp becomes extremely Mm self-referential, extremely pop culture referential, Mm -hmm. Uh, name dropping, reference dropping, uh, mentioning things that, like for example, in Tank Girl, this is set in the future in this dystopian future, but they're constantly making references to what was hip and cool and popular in the nineties. Does it make any sense? Of course it doesn't, but they got, you know, so that was something I think that, that was kind of indicative of nineties camp proximity to pop culture. I think is probably something that's been with camp all along, but really starting to lean into it consciously, I guess. As far as two thousands, I mean, we, here's what do you consider campy today? What we be? might be too old to answer that question. That's a good yeah. one. Um, yeah. I think that uh, I think the line might be so blurry because of immediate media, social yeah. media, and, and and online media. Heck, I don't know, man. What would be? And I can't. And now that I'm thinking about, it, I'm trying to think of movies that you would even classify as camp now a lot of the ones that we think about you mentioned the love Witch pre-2000 love Witch, yeah but that leans into but a she's, more I mean, retro she's going aesthetic. back to retro aesthetic exactly mm, right um I so don't... so the ones that exist it seems like lean into that retro thing uh i i i think i think the problem with with today's camp and the most recent one that i can think of would be um oh god i'm gonna butcher what's the name of the film it it's the uh the the the, the the black. It's an entirely oh, the blackening. blackening. The blackening. Thank you. Yes, an African American cast, and they're playing on a lot of these tropes in horror movies that have to do with uh, African Americans. And the, the the tagline for the film is, you know, we all can't die first. And so I think that you've got a lot of parody films mm. that are kind of trying to play up the camp factor. So there's another blurriness that's happening. And actually, I wonder if camp might have run out of steam a little bit. And that's why we're struggling to think of films. Because when I haven't seen The Blackening, but just the way they're marketing it, we can't be the first ones to die. That angle has been done to death already. They did that in Scream. Yeah. You know, back in the 90s, they were, you mm-hmm. know, parodying that element. And, and most of the elements that they had in there... Like the, the the black guy who's not really black is, you know, got glasses on and looks like Urkel or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, it seems like uh, maybe camp is running out of steam a little bit. I don't know. I'm thinking of a couple examples. These, these aren't films, but TV, the Velma, the reboot of Scooby-Doo, which if you haven't seen it is uh, it's hard to tell intention. Uh, it almost seems like it's making fun of, woke casting and, and, and whatnot, but it almost seems like it's leaning into it as well. And so that would be in the, maybe an example. And then something like the Netflix reboot of Sabrina, the teenage witch, uh, okay. which is also very campy, but both of those, uh, are remakes reboots of stuff Retro. from the seventies and eighties. So I think that we've gotten to a point where, Camp it's, is inherently retro in the 21st century. Yes. By the yes. way, Rachel Talalay, the uh, director of Tank Girl, directed several episodes of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. The really? reboot. The really? reboot, yes. In uh, another uh, <laughs> connection, uh, Tibor T-Box, who d- did The Gate, also uh, had a run as the original, uh, the directing of the original series, T- Sabrina the Teenage Witch, in the 90s, I guess? No, oh, this show's going off. Joan We're going off the rails. This is terrible. <laughs> 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 Joey, it always comes back to Sabrina for you. Um, okay, so obviously we, we know a lot about camp when it comes to old guy stuff. We don't know about camp when it comes to the kids. 
we need somebody to come in and help us out. Um, hopefully somebody out there is listening that can give us uh, some education on what's campy today. If like you said, Todd, it doesn't even still exist. Are yeah, we, are or, we so or it's retro to whatever degree it does. Are we so self-aware in the moment that campiness doesn't even have a place? I, I don't know. It's okay. become a moot. moot point. Well, some people said after nine 11, that irony died. And so if that's the case, then camp, almost doesn't have a place at least not intentional camp because irony is baked into the recipe right hmm. if that's true it might not be but yeah I, I i think that i think that parody has become the new camp yeah uh if if anything that's the that's if you had to you know say come tell me now what is it i think i think that parody is probably going to be the answer that i would give as being the the, the, the today's campiness right uh, i can't think of any other examples right yeah all right. Well, Todd, thanks for coming up with this great idea. This is fun. Uh, summer camp right in the hot of the heat. And uh, <laughs> thank God we've got some thunder and some clouds. It won't be oppressive when we walk out of the shop here. What do you guys got going on? What's coming up for you? Anything to plug? Anything new? I have something interesting that's actually a tie-in uh, to the to our show here. Um, I have a story upcoming, and this will be coming out late, late this year or early next year. Um, but there's uh, an editor that I know who's putting together a an anthology of short stories themed around Romy Schneider movies. Okay. Um, and I am writing a, I'm putting the finishing touches on it right now, a crime noir uh, thriller inspired by uh, The Swimming Pool. Oh, cool. 1969 awesome. 1969 film starring uh, Romy Schneider. Nice. I really like Romy Schneider. And I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> if you've not seen her work, <laughs> I say, well, watch it. She's very talented. <laughs> talented is not the word I would use, but okay. <laughs> she is talented, but that's not the word I would use to describe her. Um, Todd, what you got? I would recommend everyone go see Wes Anderson's new film, Asteroid City. Uh, I, you know, and I think Joey's on board with me this. I've always liked Wes Anderson, but I do feel like there's a lot of sameness uh, with some of his movies. And I feel like this movie still definitely has the Wes Anderson uh, elements to it. But I feel like there are enough um, new touches that he's thrown in there to where it's a unique experience in his filmography and i like that movie quite a bit i agree with you there i think that visually it's probably his best possibly visually right and i admire some of his uh, innovations in his own storytelling in right. this film yeah i think that some people might not get it mm -hmm. Definitely not. You have to have that sensibility. And if you're listening to this and you've seen enough Wes Anderson films, you kind of know what he goes for. And there's some familiar markers there. But as Sean's alluding to, I think he kind of uh, gives it a fresh spin. He breaks the fourth wall and the fifth wall. Yeah. In this one. Yeah. Um, I'm going to plug a podcast uh, called Girls Who Don't D&D. &D. It okay. is an Australian podcast. It's been around for about uh, right before the pandemic, I think, is when they started recording. Um, it's a guy, Corey, who is an excellent, excellent storyteller, and three girls who have never played D&D &D before. And, and they play D&D? And, and they, they play D&D. &D. And they're still going strong, and I think that the girls have fully embraced the D&D &D culture. They love it. They're having a fun. And it's a funny um, uh, take on role playing and it's a good it's a good story it's, it's a lot of fun i would recommend checking it out 
Todd, uh, Todd, you know, thanks for this episode idea. This is great. Joey, you and I are going to have to circle back and try to get the one and done squeezed in here. I think I already have my two films um, okay. picked out for that one. So, yeah. Explain we'll the one and done again. Is this one where it's like a director who puts out a. No, movie? no, no, no. These are films that you only need to see one time. For, okay. Oh, oh, for whatever oh, reason, okay. you will not Inclu- come back to them. Include um, me on this one. I've definitely got a few already. In my and mind. then uh, I think we still have one on the horizon that uh, that we're all excited about. That's the uh, crazy fan theories episode. So, oh yes. Yeah, we're, we'll get into that one. I've sometime been doing soon. some preliminary research. Yes. On that. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's that one's going to be a blast. That's going to be like Rabbit Hole City. <laughs> um, all right. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks for legging it out with us. Sorry for the little uh, break in uh, episodes, but we're back on track hopefully. And uh, you know, please tell your friends about us. Rate, review, subscribe. Check us out on social media. Send us a note. We're at Cinema Chop Shop on everything except for YouTube. We're at Cinema Chop Shop Podcast. There you can watch an audio presentation of this episode, which makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, I have a face for radio. <laughs> don't we all? Uh, so anyway, thanks, guys. And uh, please, uh, you know, stay cool. It's really freaking hot right now after we had a very mild spring, which I'm still thankful for, but it's pretty oppressive right now. And, uh, you know, be good to each other. Call your family. You know, tell them, tell them As Jerry Springer would say, uh, take care of yourself. Take, take care of yourselves. Job. That's it. And please remember to watch, watch Chop, Chop Retrofit. Retrofit.